Let's see, where's All right. So we're going to go ahead and get this show on the road, run a little bit behind, but that's all right. So thank you all for coming out to our Boston restaurant development event. We have an amazing lineup for you this afternoon. So we are going to begin with a kind of inside out look at the restaurant world, the operations and what it takes to run a successful restaurant, uh, what operators look for from the owner's perspective, leasing perspective, really give you a diverse conversation. Then we are going to move into a location-focused discussion where we're going to take a look at placemaking, uh, operating a restaurant in a standalone location versus a urban mixed use versus suburban. So my goal is to put down the microphone as quickly as possible and hand it over to the folks behind me. But before I do so, just a few quick announcements. First off is we're going to be selling discounted tickets at registration by where you walked in. We have a multifamily event, life sciences, property management. So if you want a discounted ticket, please feel free to swing by registration at any point after the content. The next is a big thank you to all of our sponsors. Uh, these events would not be possible without them. They help keep ticket prices low and help us to host so many fantastic events. So a big thank you to Roberto, Israel, and Weiner. Massachusetts Restaurant Association, CBRE, Next Step Living, Bergmeier, Phase Zero Design, District Hall, and Boston Event Solutions. Big round of applause for all of our sponsors today. Now I would like to give a big special shout out to Phase Zero Design. They're one of our sponsors today, and they offer architectural and interior design planning services. They do work from hospitality to higher ed, uh, corporate office to retail, and they design dining facilities in major higher education and medical facilities across the U.S. Done work with the Compass Group nationally, doing projects with Chartwells and Morrisons, American Tap Room in Dulles Airport, and the American International College of Dining excuse me, the American International Dining Commons in Springfield, Massachusetts. So they've done restaurant design concepts with Checkers, Cheeburger, Cheeburger, Muya, design and prototype development for Toto Ramen, Cilantro Mex, and they're now working with Marcus Lemonis from the hit CNBC show, The Profit, and they're doing work with Simple Greek and Standard Burger on national rollouts for design prototypes with both brands. So a big special thank you to Phase Zero Design. Now, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to the folks you came to see. We're going to do self-introductions. So, Brian, let's start with you, and then we'll head on down the line. And, Jeff, I'll let you take it away. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Sierra with WS Development. Uh, I've been with the company for about 15 years. Uh, uh, but that's enough about me. Our company's doing a lot of stuff in the seaport here that we're real excited about uh, and have built a lot of interesting projects around 128 in Boston. Derby Street Shops in Hingham, Legacy Place in Dedham, Massachusetts, and not opened too long ago, Market Street up in Linfield. And uh, we love restaurants and restaurateurs. 
and we actually love you guys. Um, my name is Joshua Smith with Moody's Delicatessen and Provisions and New England Charcuterie in Waltham. Uh, we are, have a food manufacturing facility we're building in Waltham in conjunction with the facility that we have currently operating, as well as a deli and a uh, wine bar that we have affectionately behind our deli named The Back Room. Uh, so that's what we do. Hi, everybody. I'm Andrea Simone with CBRE. And it's so nice to see so many familiar faces out here. So thanks for coming. Um, I handle urban restaurant and retail deal making um, just in Boston. And I've had the pleasure of working on several amazing restaurants like Smith Walensky, Sorrel Bakery, Be Good, um, kind of all the gamut from full service to fast casual to nationals to startups. So look forward to the conversation. Uh, and I'm Jeff Leone. Uh, I'm an associate with Bergmeier Associates and uh, project manager and project designer and all the above. Uh, we've, I've been with the company about a year now, but been doing a lot of restaurant work for the past 15 or 16 years. Really like to partner with the clients and working with the developers and working with brokers, coming together with a concept that fits right with the uh, place we're trying to go. Um, so uh, without further ado, I wanted to thank everyone for coming. I'm going to make this pretty casual, kind of keep this uh, an open forum for discussion. Uh, so feel free to raise your hand if you have any specific questions. I've got a couple things I wanted to, to bring up, sort of prompt in discussion. Um, as, as we're all here, we know how important restaurants are. Uh, they make up a lot of our urban fabric, a lot of our uh, communities, our developments. Um, I wanted to ask Brian to start off the conversation and talk about, like, in his view, um, how important are restaurants for work that he does. Well, we're, we're a, historically, we're a retail developer, and the importance of food and restaurants in our projects is getting, uh, becoming more and more important. Uh, the last project we opened in Linfield, I think we have uh, 10 uh, sit-down restaurants, nine or 10 sit-down restaurants, and uh, retail is changing very, very quickly, um, and uh, you can't just have a retail project that, that is just stuff, that's just commodity stuff. Um, you really have to provide experiences, and that's a big part of where food comes into the equation. Um, it is one of the very few places today where people will actually put down these blessings and these curses called a smartphone and sit it down on the table and actually talk to each other. Um, so it's, it's really a very, very important part of, of uh, our recipe and the stuff that we're doing in the suburbs and in the city. So Brian, like, part of it is the evolution of shopping centers as, the, as a whole. Uh, traditionally, 30 years ago, we were looking at like a Sears or, um, or you know, even like a Bass Pro Shop, for example, would anchor a facility. Would you say that the restaurants of the world and the food and the social component have superseded that? No question. And what we do, the the anchors for us are is food and restaurants. There's no there's no question about that. Uh, uh, the social piece of it is is certainly a big piece of it. Uh, there's a there's a a uh, new saying out there in retail that I've uh, that we've kind of glommed onto. It's um, you know provide an experience or you will experience lower sales, um, and that's definitely true in the retail environment today. You, there, you know, with with the uh, the strength of the internet and the ability to get the stuff that commodity stuff wherever and whenever you want at the few touches of a button. If you're not 
paying attention to experience and what you're providing your customers and giving them a different reason to come to your project than, than really what are you doing? Kind of a lot of stuff that we've all kind of experienced, seeing an uprise in like the social aspect of restaurants and how, how impactful they are for, the, for projects that we work on and the communities that they, they take hold. Um, I want to shift a little bit to talk about, well, specifically, um, who's doing a great job. And maybe I'll give Andrew the floor here for a second. And you can tell us uh, a couple places where you've been maybe recently or who's hot right now. Okay, so yes, uh, it is all about the experience. So I will echo that and agree. Um, just Sunday, I went out to dinner to Posto in Davis Square. Very great experience. And it was really funny where um, it kind of ties into a trend and who's doing something really great. I have a lemon drop martini. Anybody that knows me knows that's what I get. And I have a very special mix of what I like in it. And so I said, well, of course, you have limoncello. And that kind of it says if this is a great restaurant or not if they have limoncello. And this restaurant not only had limoncello, but they said, would you like Buddha's hand limoncello, zebra lemon limoncello, or blood orange limoncello, which I guess would be orangello. But it was, it was just like, this is the trend now. You can't just have one thing and sort of check the box. You have to ha like do it over to excess to sort of overdo it. And that's what we kind of expect as consumers. And so you can't just do it ordinarily now. You have to like overdo it. But it's a good thing. Okay, I'll do the other one. The other really great thing I had, I could talk about food all day, um, over at Committee across the street from here. Um, really interesting experience. It's a Greek restaurant. That's what I believe they've marketed themselves to be. But at the, from the customer standpoint or the experiential standpoint, it doesn't hit you over the head. You walk in and it's sort of polished concrete and it's beautiful plants and it's kind of Mediterranean general question mark. Um, and the menu is definitely Greek but the decor isn't necessarily stereotypical Greek. It's just very interesting and eclectic. And I think the menu is also eclectic. They had um, gigantes, which are like giant beans, which I believe is like a Spanish word. So, but it was somehow, I said, where did this recipe come from? And he said it did come from their Greek consulting chef, Diane, but I was very curious where that came from. What they had on the menu that was so delicious, and I had never seen anything like it or had anything like it, it was a piece of feta that was warmed and then coated in sesame seeds and drizzled in honey. And it was awesome. Awesome. I think the expectations are pretty high for restaurants, is what you're trying to say. And it's really hard to make something successful. Like, if everyone's doing the same, then how do you differentiate? Um, and of your list, I didn't, I didn't hear you mention Moody's. Um, that's, Take it away. You know, but I, I figured I would have come up. And uh, I'll give the floor to Josh to tell us maybe a little bit about what you think a successful restaurant uh, entails. What makes it successful? I think uh, from the experience that we have so far, especially out in Waltham, as we looked around to see what was needed, we looked at each other as an amenity, less about what, what we thought we wanted to do, but more about what we thought was missing in the community that we were trying to thrive in. And so that formula has done really well for us. And, you know, we started with the deli making sandwiches. We realized that that's something that, you know, with all the businesses up and down the 128 was needed. People need to eat lunch. And so we provided a breakfast and lunch experience, which truly came out of necessity because all I wanted to do was cure meat. But the the idea behind just curing meat and sitting around for six months waiting, to forget, waiting for it to get done 
capitally was not very smart. It didn't make a good business plan. So we, so we rethought that and started selling coffee and eggs and things like that. And, and people started coming and it was great. And we were like, wow, this is something. And we ended up had so many guests, so many businesses that wanted to do dinners in our shop that we started doing wine dinners. And then the need to continue doing dinners, we said, all right, well, let's expand and create seating. So then we expanded to the back room, which is an untraditional restaurant. There's no storefront. There's no doorway. There's, no, there's not even really a name. We just call it the back room because that's what it is. And, uh, and it kind of grew. And we try things on the menu all the time. And if they don't work, we take them off. You know, we don't do it out of our ego or, you know, people must like this. It's we try what we think would go really well, seasonally, um, whatever inspires us. And we let that sort of drive. We let the guests, the guests choose with their, you know, with their purchasing power, with their credit card. And if they buy it, we keep doing it. We make sure that every time we do it, it's great, if not better than the last time they had it. So when you started off as the deli, you obviously didn't have alcohol at the time. Um, how does that impact your success. I mean, uh, you, have, you have a unique product, something that people, uh, you obviously identified in the area that you didn't have that uh, sort of lunch, cuisine, a place to go. Um, but from, a, from an operator standpoint, what we've been hearing up and down with all the panels everywhere is alcohol plays a huge part in success of a company. Even like the Boston City Council just did the whole uh, BYOB thing uh, for outlying neighborhoods to help support that effort. Is, is alcohol really a big thing? Maybe, Brian, you can chime in on how important that is in the work that you do. I wouldn't frame it as a big thing. It, it definitely plays a part. It's a, it's a good thing. Like, we wanted to focus on wines. Wines was something that I thought went well with what we did and made it, you know, increase that social and communal atmosphere like we were talking about in, in, a, in a specific setting. But people, you're absolutely right, people love the cocktails. We ended up scoring and, and hiring this wonderful bartender who, you know, we had no emphasis on the cocktail. We don't have an, un we have a very untraditional back bar. Everything, if you walk in there, it screams wine. There's wine everywhere, literally. And, you know, the bar has really taken off the amount of cocktails. So it plays a big role, but I don't place a huge emphasis on it as a business owner. But does it make it harder to lease a space, for example, or as a, as a broker looking for a space, if it if it came with a liquor license or access to one or transfer of one, does that make the deal a little bit sweeter, especially for an entrepreneur or a restaurateur looking to sort of figure out their margins? Uh, there's no question that, that um, I think uh, Andrea touched on it earlier, whatever you do, do it really well. And, and, and there's a, you know, there was a big talk here about what makes restaurateurs successful, passion, focus. You know, they're not all over the map. Uh, but certainly a trend today is craft beer, uh, craft cocktails, uh, better and more expensive wine. It adds to the experience. Uh, if people came to your, come to your place and they had a, a great time while they were there, there's a much better chance that they're going to come back. And I think we would all agree in this room that, that alcohol can, <laughs> can well, help with that. <laughs> it definitely brings them in. And we looked at doing, like when we do the wine, we run much leaner margins on it. We don't charge a lot. We try to make it accessible so when they're in a retail setting after they've enjoyed a nice bottle of wine, it's more palatable, the price that they pay in the retail setting as opposed to what they paid in our restaurant. Um, you know, we run, you know, beer and, beer and liquor, you know, pretty traditional, but traditionally, like, if you're, if you're down in the back bay and you buy a bottle of wine, it's going to cost 300% more than it would out, out west, you know, because the liquor license costs that much more. Everything costs that much more to do it. So, 
having a liquor license as part of the deal is definitely a, a pot sweetener. Yeah, especially in the urban world, the liquor licenses general market is like $400,000 for a full liquor license. So when I have a tenant that's saying, where should we plunk down? Where should we do this? Should we do it in Boston or should we do it out maybe, you know, just outside of the city? It's a big factor that they weigh into the, the initial operating opening budget. In terms of success, how important is staff, staff retention? I kind of want to like bring that up. Hot, huge. Hot and heavy. There's a huge labor shortage in Boston. Like, if I could say one thing, you guys all should be going after Johnson & Wales kids and Cambridge Culinary. And, I mean, it's crazy how much my husband's a chef, so I hear about it. Like, that's what I hear about at midnight when he comes home is who showed up and who didn't show up. It's crazy. And with all the restaurants opening, all the labor that's required, I think we're having a little bit of a shortage in Boston or, you know, in this general area with um, qualified labor that wants to show up and wants to be there. It's Really interesting. But I will say the Johnson & Wales kids, they have to do internships, so they're good kids. I, I can't agree on the Johnson & Wales point. I try to avoid school internships as much as possible. Um, I, I focus on sort of promoting people from within. We've been lucky out where we are in the suburbs. Um, we get a lot of green individuals that maybe haven't had any experience in that industry, and we focus on training. And training and cultivating talent from within has been a, a secret to our consistency and success there. We have had a decent amount of turnover, especially the other day we looked, and there's a huge stack of W4s that we had to ship out. We're like, wow, this many people aren't here anymore. But you know what? You know, it's a, it's a different environment, and if you spend the time and you work with them and you train them and you work hard, a lot of people that are great, know other people that are great. And sometimes that helps to bring more in. And so sort of promoting from within and looking from within, as opposed to the traditional methods, can be very successful as well. I mean, because you're right. I mean, it's a bit saturated, but it's not that bad. I, I think it's probably a, uh, it's a, it's probably the toughest issue in the, in the, uh, in the restaurant industry. You know, of course, Boston, low unemployment. Um, a lot of higher education in the area, so you know there's going to be a general issue. But you can, you know, we we meet with restaurateurs all the time, and you can tell the ones that that leadership of the restaurateurs that you you meet with and their energy and their commitment to detail and focus, the ones that are going to have that issue and the ones that aren't going to have that issue because it's it, it really is a uh, it's a leadership thing, and you can, you know, it usually starts at the top, you know, a Danny Meyer kind of personality that is infectious, a Josh kind of personality that's infectious that, that kind of makes its way through the organization seem to fare better than, uh, you know, where you can't see that, you can't feel it. Yeah, I, you know, we, uh, we have three facets of our business. We have the catering piece, we have the, you know, the a la carte piece, and then we have the manufacturing I was struggling. I thought that a chef was going to be the guy that was going to do our manufacturing piece and help with the, you know, the detail of running the manufacturing of all the charcuterie. It's a big thing for chefs to make charcuterie. I was so frustrated in finding the right person, I put it out on social media. I used it as a tool, took a picture of the equipment, put it out there, and got a response from a guy in aerospace who had been doing that for almost 10 years. Manufacturing is manufacturing to these guys. He called me up. We had a conversation, had a great interview. He trailed for a day said he loved it, and I mean, he was like a, an enthusiast at home, barbecuing on the weekends. Now my, my manufacturing you know, director is 
from aerospace. It has nothing to do with charcuterie. And so between myself and my, my food, food scientist, we teach him on a daily basis and he gets it because, again, manufacturing is manufacturing. And I think that holds true across the board. You find someone that is into something, whatever they're passionate about, and you start to cultivate that passion for whatever it is you need them to do, whether it's cooking the steaks perfectly. We got a guy from the beer world who does our steaks, and he's unbelievable. And on his days off, he goes surfing, even now. He's absolutely crazy, but he's unbelievable, you know? And so they, you, you find gems in the strangest places. How would it talk about social media? Because you were saying how you just fired your aerospace guy. And social media today, Brian, you touched on the cell phone. You're looking at, you're checking your cell phone now. We almost done. Not, not rude at all. Uh, Are we boring you? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else back there? It's almost never boring. We'll take a little break. Everyone can check their phones. Um, in terms of marketing and getting out there, I mean, there's the there's a there's a lot that goes into people writing negative reviews and responding to that. So the landscape of marketing across restaurants has changed a lot. In fact, like, I think like if we get a, if you took a poll in the room and everyone were to raise their hand, um, before deciding to go into a restaurant, who checks their website first? And get a show of hands. That's a, that's a, that's a big proportion. So as a, as a designer, the, the interface with your customers, the first impression is their website. Um, so social media has a big part of that, Facebook and whoever, whatever these kids are using these days. Um, tell me a little bit about your presence. I think uh, social media is huge. I use it as a tool. We, um, you know, I was faced with a challenge when we first opened, how do I do this? Do I pay a PR company, marketing, things like that? Anybody that's read The Globe knows and Boston Magazine, they've been very kind to us. We've been very, very lucky to get such good press. I don't have a PR company, it's me. It's us using Facebook, Instagram. I'm a big fan of Instagram. You know, I go throughout my day and I see things and I think they're pretty awesome. We make it about the product. We don't make it, it's not about me. You'd almost never know who I was if you looked at our Instagram feed. It's more about what products that we're interested in, what wines we're drinking, what, you know, what we're doing, what foods we're excited about. And I think that's special and I think people dig that. And they, you know, they look at these sort of social media feeds to get inspired and draw inspiration from. So I think that keeping up with that, Constant Contact, Facebook, and, um, and your website are great tools to market whatever it is you're doing. Um, and I think they're effective. I, we've, I can't tell you how many times I've posted something that draws people in. Oh, I saw you're doing this lunch special on Instagram. You know, they come in and it's like, it blows me away. So I, that feeds me to keep doing it. And I save, you know, 10000 a month by not paying a PR firm. And there's probably something on the tenant mix side or uh, leasing side that, you know, when you're looking for that right person, that your first impression is also social media. Absolutely. And I can count on both hands how many tenants that have new concepts that have given us their, like, Pinterest ideas, handwriting, sort of like this, maybe like that, a little bit more of this, da-da-da-da, and sort of just scrolling from everything that they've looked at online that they've pulled from onto their pages. And so that's become sort of a add on to the business plan, which is very helpful to be able to show the developer, well, this is what you, you're something you're like what you're going to get on the, you know, on the first floor of your building. So I think it has helped to kind of get someone to visualize it and say, yeah, that's what I want. So from an entrepreneur standpoint, if I were sitting there in the back row where that guy's looking at his phone um, and I were saying, okay, I really want to talk to Brian after this, I'm starting a restaurant. Um, first impression, maybe I 
present you a website or show you a couple things? Are you more? Well, I think that's the first thing everyone is going to do today is they're going to go to website, they're going to go to social media, they're going to go to Yelp, they're going to go to everything and learn as much as they can, as quickly as they can, as easily as they can. So By the way, is, that's what a developer is doing. That's what your customers are doing all day, every day now. There's, there's concepts that are being designed and well they should be with Instagram you know, the, the, the design of the restaurant, what, how the food is going to photograph, what their menu is going to be these days. There's a lot of it that's being designed with social media in mind. That, that it, my customer, is go, it's going to resonate with them. So I, it's all there in the back of their, their head is they're designing everything that they're doing. So it's, it's huge. Uh, you know, you, you can learn so much so quickly these days. And you can, it's either going to be good or it's going to be bad, and people are making decisions instantaneously just by a couple flicks of a thumb, and, and so it better be good. So a well-put-together Instagram account or Pinterest account or presentation to you, you might, with a new entrepreneur, take a bigger risk on that person if they've got a stronger passion. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and again, it, it, it comes back to passion, and it comes back to focus. You can tell uh, the, the restaurateurs and the, and the companies or retailers that are doing it because they think they should be doing it versus uh, you know, something born out of passion and focus and, and this is what I do. Um, and this restaurant's gonna be great. You, you can see it. it, it comes through, especially in the social media. As a consumer, I would say that most of the restaurants, it's hard to see the forest through the trees or see the trees through the forest, however that works. Um, Andrew, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you're seeing as trends. Um, what really differentiates you know, this restaurant that has 15 different limoncellos and the next one next door that has 16 different limoncellos? Is it quantity or is it something that's well, unique about them? It, it, you have to figure out who your customer is. I think that's a big piece of it because a great concept in a weird place just doesn't match. Right? If the customers aren't there, they're not asking for it, you have to listen to what the customers want and what they're asking for. And they may not actually say, this is what we want, but you have to kind of figure it out. Um, I think anyone that differentiates themselves, that does the best of whatever they do, I think is, you know, I think that's important. Whatever it is you do in life, whether it's restaurants or business or whatever it is, it's like it has to be done with passion and it has to be done to the best of your ability. And, you know, it's funny, I, I got to meet Danny Meyer this fall, really nice guy, you know, just really great guy. And we had this conversation about front of house and back of house and all that kind of, you know, dance about how that all works. And he said, look, any job you do, you have to do it 100% plus in any job. He said, but 49% of the job you're doing is the actual job you're doing. So if you're a server, you're just actually delivering the food to the proper person, proper temperature, on time you know, the whole nine yards doing it, that's 49% of your job. He said, but 51% of your job is the experience of it, the customer's experience. Was it perfect? Was it what they wanted? Was it beyond their expectations? Did you remember it's their birthday? Did you remember that their kids have been away and now they're home from college? Like, just doing whatever it is you do, but 51% of it is skewed more towards the experience of it. And I think, I just really think that relates to my world too. Like, I can sign a lease and that's fine but there are so many other elements that go with it that I have to do that make it the full package for my clients. So I just thought there was a really interesting like, approach and in how 
I think if you go into it with that focus, your customers will be happy. They'll come back. They'll have a great experience. They'll tell 20 people. They'll tell the internet. They'll tell everybody they know. And it will just breed on and on and on. If everyone's doing that, then it makes it really hard to separate. We just keep spending money. We keep eating every three hours. It's no big deal. <laughs> just keep doing it. You know? but everyone's not doing it, though. And it's, it takes so much time and effort to do it, to, to do these things. As she said, you know, we spend time coming up with stationery, you know, the stationery that's going to represent our business well so we can handwrite letters and, and wish our guests happy birthday when, they, when their birthdays come back up. And we go out of our way to try and create profiles on everybody that comes in without asking them to fill out a resume, you know. So you try to pick up, you know, like what Danny Myers is saying is, that, you know, you, you try to get what you can from the guests without being intrusive, and then you collect that information and you surprise them when they come back. I learned this at the Four Seasons. It's a very hospitality-driven focus, you know. We're lucky to have them, right? We're lucky to have them come there. There's a saturation in restaurants and places to go. How do you make that experience different? And there's not enough people out there that are putting a focus on that to make sure that that experience is special. And what made it special? Did they remember your name? Did they remember when you got married, when your anniversary was? And there's, it's not being done. That's going to be hard to scale, though, Josh, isn't it? No. Just make the right Kool-Aid. So. Get the right staff. That's it. You have to get the right staff. They drink the Kool-Aid. You know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you go on any Saturday to our deli, we're very fortunate to have a line out the door. You'll get the same experience every single Saturday. You know, the, 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 the staff there, they treat every guest as, as special as the next every single time, time and again. So then if you want to scale that, you take one and you move into the next spot. Then they hold everybody around them to the same standard. So that's a really a hospitality-inspired, really authentic, pure heart type of approach. And, and that's wonderful. I, I can't say that every restaurant I've been in, I've been greeted the same way. Um, from a, a developer's point of view or a broker's point of view, and how do you find the right mix of tenants uh, as you develop a new, a, a new project? If we're looking at Seaport, for example. It, it, it's a lot of the things that we were talking about, you know, the, the leadership of the company. But you, you, um, you, start, you just started talking about trends, Jeff, a little while ago. You have to keep your, your uh, ear to the tracks about what, it, you know, what are the trends uh, because that's what the customer wants. There's a lot of really interesting trends out there. Um, certainly a huge one is uh, clean menus and... Uh, ingredients. People are, are uh, definitely these days want to know more than ever times 10 what they're putting in their body. Um, and if they can feel that authenticity and they, and they can get a sweet green, great trend, great concept. You, you walk in, it's right there in front of you. It's fast. You see it in front of you. you can, they, they put it together. You pick your stuff and you're out the door. You know, great great concept, you know, that Chipotle model that so many people are, are copying now because it's, it's the kiss rule, right? It's keep it simple, it's stupid, and it's pure. Um, so ingredients, uh, certainly the craft cocktail, craft beer movement. Um, craft meat. Craft meat. <laughs> uh, central bars, another trend that you see. You look at bigger restaurants that are doing the really big volumes. You see the central bars in the middle of them because, again, that whole socialization aspect of, uh, so there's a, there's a lot of, we could literally sit here and list 12 trends that you gotta stay focused on too so you're, you're meeting the, the demand of the customer, as Andrea points out. So if you're representing a restaurant tour, 
um, you're looking for spaces that allow for that type of trend, right? That the, the, the community is seeking out something that they don't have already. Uh, they're looking for spaces that might be interesting, spaces that might be uh, uh, promote a sort of more social environment, bars in the center, communal tables. Um, how do you go about finding some of those? Who do we, who do we call? Andrea D. Simone. Um, <laughs> geez, that was an easy one. Um, well, it's interesting, because a lot of times, well, that, that's, I guess, your question here. Do you want shell space that's easy? You can tie into the gas line, tie into the plumbing line. Utilities are brought up to the space. Or do you want something really old and interesting and unique and in this, old, in this neighborhood that everybody goes to, Back Bay, Harvard Square, that kind of thing? But when you're taking on that space, you're inheriting whatever else has been in there for however long, and you have to clean it up. And that's always a big debate. You know, do you take a shell space and give it character, or do you take a space with character and clean it up? And where, how do you want to spend your dollars? You know, a lot of it, shell space, you know, getting into really nitty-gritty deal points here, a lot of the TI dollars that you're getting from the developers are just bringing the space to a restaurant-ready shell, you know, putting in the venting shaft or putting in the toilets, which... You can't take it with you, you know? And so a lot of times you end up spending a lot of the TI dollars, the tenant incentive money, on base building stuff. So a lot of times you have to ask for more money just to get it up to a restaurant-ready shell, and then you can spend it on other things that are going to en enhance the whole experience beyond the toilet. But. Our good friends at the MRA shared some statistics. Uh, they do it annually, um, and it, I guess the trend is that I think, what is it, 80% of restaurants fail in the first year? Um, that's, a, that's a huge number. No? Am I, I, am I making that, that cannot up? be right. Uh, well, that cannot be right. Bob Lutz in the back there, uh, <laughs> something like that. Uh, well, if you, even if you look at 35%. Yeah, right, exactly. Way I think that's the old number. 50% like. of statistics are made up. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but If it's done right, it's not going to fail. I mean, think about it. In Boston, just in the, in the urban world, that's all I can talk about. All we're I know, we're right? a little blessed here and lucky. But think about to it. Other parts of the country I mean, in that regard. I mean, how many restaurants really, really, that you know of that just pff, complete blowout within a year? There's a little blog I follow every once in a while called, I think, Hidden Boston, and it mm -hmm. kind of tracks those that are successful in openings and closings. And if you really do the, the math over a course of a year, it's as many openings as closings. Um, that's, that's scary, and maybe I'm a pessimist in some ways, maybe realist if you look at it a different way. Um, but wait, I'm going to interrupt you. Because isn't that what makes it interesting from the consumer standpoint? Right? I mean, it's okay to change it up. You have pop-up restaurants. You have visiting chefs. You have crazy collaborations where your friend's in town, and he does this amazing finocchione or whatever, and so you bring him in, and that brings customers in for that collaborative experience. So... I don't know if it matters anymore, that whole like curse space and I just, I don't think, I think now everything's changing every six months anyway, or every three days everything's changing. Like, I don't think it matters that much. And I do think there is a, there's a war of attrition that happens too, you know. Um, um, you got all new restaurants opening and they're doing it better and they designed it better and their menu is on trend and they're doing all these things. And there's the guy that's around the corner who's been resting on his laurels for a long time. And that, that's the unfortunate piece of up. it. It's the unfortunate piece of it. It's, a, it's just like in the industry. If you don't stay on game, if you don't stay on point, uh, you're going you're gonna to lose to the guy who is paying more attention to the details. So there's no question that there's, you know, that you, you, all the seats 
in greater Boston aren't going to survive when you got all these great concepts uh, inventing themselves and doing it better. A lot of it has to do with the relationship with whoever they're leasing from, you know, because and it depends on why you go into it in the beginning, you know, like you'll see a lot of a lot of chefs that are going into it for themselves for the food um, and what they thought should be. They run a they run a course five, six years. And it's not necessarily in the first year, but it runs a course and then it closes. There's a lot of talented chefs that are closing their restaurants now that, you know, maybe we're doing it for the wrong reasons, maybe had the wrong lease. I don't know what it is, but the first rule is making sure you got the right lease, making sure you got the right arrangement. Because you want to sign, you know, a 10 and two fives. You want to be there for 20 years. You want to be able to, you know, amortize all that, you know, depreciate all those assets and, and get the use out of the space and have the relationship. And, you know, if you have to reboot it after, you know, seven to eight years and refresh it and reclean it, build that into the plan and know that you have to do that, not go into it looking at the first year and surviving that. You know what I mean? And I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot that needs to be, sorry about that. From a from a strategy standpoint, technology. technology. Um, from a strategy standpoint, uh, process and what goes through your mind when you're starting a business, uh, specifically for restaurants. If we're talking about turnover, that's seven years for a makeover for a restaurant, maybe less. Um, you have to go in there with kind of a. Where do you spend your money when you at the get go? Do you build out the Taj Mahal? Are you focused on making sure your numbers work? Like, talk a little bit about how, how you started your process. It's, a, it's an unfair uh, question because you've met my partner and it's more Taj Mahal than it is anything else. No, I mean, obviously the partnership is great and the way you structure the deal um, financially is super important. And, you know, again, if you do have a partner, what's your partner into it for? Why do they want it, you know? And, what do you want out of it? What do you hope to do? What's your goals? What are your, what's your 10, 15, and 20-year plan? Um, it all really comes down to the relationships, relationships with the right architect, which in this case was you, and, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Relationship with the landlord. You know, I took, I took the space where we are, and I hammered the guy for five years. I kept walking. I had my son in a carriage. I'd walk down. Hey, you ready to sell yet? Hey, you ready to sell yet? You know, I wanted to have that space. And it just, it, the space, it's not because it was a beautiful space. It was disgusting. It was just, this is where I want to be. This is where I'm going to set up shop. So my, my thing was, I was driven by being able to walk to work. You know, and I was like, I'll build it. And hopefully they'll come. Not sure. I'm going to make some sandwiches. Cheap rent. So either way. Um, but, you know, it's hard because I spent a lot of money with other architects looking at other spaces and trying to build it out. Like if you go down the road with a leasing agent and you start, you know, you have to go, you have to spend five, ten thousand, 10000 get the space drawn up, make sure you can get a permit, see if everything works out. When it comes time to lease, maybe it's not going to work. You know, maybe the, the numbers don't work, you know. And, and uh, you're right, the TI sometimes is terrible because, you know, all that goes toward the infrastructure and you've burned it up and then you're, you spend the next 10 years trying to pay off this debt to, you know, wherever you get your money. And at the end, what are you left with? Not really much. And it's kind of sucks uh, from a chef's point of view. So it really happens. It goes down to what you're doing it for and how you structure it. You have to have a really strong, solid business plan and a good model that will sustain more than 10 years. You know, realistically, not everybody's going to love this, this dish with, that I put together with these tweezers. and It's going to be awesome. No, because that's going to be out in two or three years, you know. From a lessons learned standpoint, what would you have done differently, if anything at all? And, and I guess I would open up to the floor and maybe look at it a little differently. Tips for the, uh, the budding entrepreneurs in the room. What are, what are some uh, takeaways that everyone can kind of appreciate? 
Josh. It sounds, it sounds crazy, but sometimes saving money doesn't save you money. You know, sometimes you end up paying for it in the long run. I did everything I could to save money on the first build out and I'm still paying for it. You know, financially things that weren't done right improperly. The lowest bidder is not always the best quality. So usually get what you pay for. I would say nine times out of 10, you know, so going with a Kafka, Mr. Ed McCabe there, or going with a Shawmit, or, you know, these great companies that are notoriously are higher, you get what you pay for. You get out of it. You get someone that's going to stand behind the product and support you. And I went with initially whatever, you know, contractor my buddy knew or this knew or that person. It does not work out. Um, finding the right architect, finding the right contractor, finding everything, putting together your dream plan and trying to scale it to a palatable point from there makes the most sense. And, you know, I spent, we're building this facility. It's a food manufacturing facility now. I've signed the lease like four months ago, negotiated three months free rent. We just started a demo yesterday. So, you know, we've already burned that. And uh, now, because I thought I could save, I thought we could, you know, that's a, a different scale of things, but the bottom line is I'll never try that again. I'll just go right from the get-go, so. Brian, any tips for everyone? Yeah, I think that, the, and, and we're, we're hearing a lot about it right up here on the stage, uh, a tip, um, you know, a thing I've learned is that um, it starts, you know, begins and ends with the food. You know, we're, they're in the restaurant business serving really great food, but it's really the people and the person, the, the leadership of that company. And, you know, you, it's hard to put a thumb on it, but when you meet with people, you can either feel that energy and feel that passion and, and feel that uh, uh, attention to detail, or you can't. And you gotta, you know, just a, you gotta pay attention to those, uh, those feelings in you because you can spend a lot of time and a lot of money going down a path with the wrong operator and when in your gut you knew it because those items weren't there. So really, we know we have a mutual friend, Joe Faro, Tuscan Kitchen. You know, the guy, he's a lot like Josh here. He comes, he's bouncing off the walls. I mean, he's just, like, and he is, uh, you know, rolls up his sleeves, flower flying everywhere, and, and you know, goes on for 45 minutes about bread. Uh, that's a guy. Oh, that no, no, like, that's just bread, <laughs> like anything with gluten. That's a guy that, that like, okay, I, I can hitch my wagon to this guy. This, this guy's, uh, he's got it. He's got the, uh, he's got the passion. So I guess, yes, assemble the right team. That's very helpful. Um, ask for more money than you think you need. Line up more money than you think you need. Um, it's nice to be in the first floor of an office building from the developer standpoint, sorry, Brian, from the developer standpoint, uh, the first floor is the amenity to the building. The deal is a little bit different from my experience because upstairs is paying the mortgage, so to speak, and the first floor is a great amenity. The opposite side of that, though, the other side of the sword, is that whoever on the first floor of your building brands your building. So if it's not a fit, if it's not the right tenant, if it's just not the right operation, everybody upstairs is going to come marching into your office and tell you the food line is way too long. It took too long to get my burger. It's, what is this? This is ridiculous. So it's got to be the right fit. But a lot of times you'll get a really good deal if you are an amenity as opposed to the rent paying for the space. That's my advice. And my my last bit of advice is really to do your homework up front. 
Um, it's great to go through Pinterest and find things that inspire you and to be passionate, but there's a huge chunk of money that goes into finding the right space that works and understanding what it goes, what goes into that space uh, before you can even put a chair in there to start serving food. Um, I think that's all the time we have today, but... Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeff, especially, who's so instrumental in putting together all these questions, big thank you for our first panel. Big thank you. Now we are going to move directly into our second panel. For all the folks standing on the side and in the back, there are plenty of seats right up front if you guys just want to make your way around, and front row has plenty of space. And our second panel is going to make their way up. No, wherever. I got to get another chair up there. All right, all right. I absolutely hate doing that. Um, all right, so now we are going to move directly into our second panel. Um, as I said, taking a look at location, execution in different spaces. Um, as you're used to, Lori, we'll do the self-introduction. So I'll begin with you. And then, Michael, I will leave it to you to take it away. Excellent. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming today. I'm Lori McQueenie with Samuels & Associates. Um, we're doing a ton of leasing in the Fenway, which I think most people know. Um, we have existing buildings and new buildings and buildings coming up out of the ground. Uh, we have a new ground-up project that just opened in North Alston called The Continuum, where we have some retail space to lease. Um, and we own the shipyard in Hingham, and we have some restaurant space there as well. Hi, I'm Steve Silverstein from Not Your Average Joe's. Uh, we operate 25 restaurants uh, in six states, and we'll open four restaurants this year. Uh, the next restaurant to open is, is a brand new prototype in Westwood, Mass. Hi, everyone. I'm Leo Fonseca. I'm with Stephanie's Restaurant Group here in Boston. We operate well, I say we have three and a half restaurants because we have three that we own and operate. Stephanie's on Newberry uh, in the Back Bay, which most of you are probably familiar with. Stephanie's on Tremont in the South End. Stephanie's in Southie on Broadway in South Boston. And we have a partnership in Terminal B in Logan Airport called Stephanie's. Hi, I'm Jeremy Sewell. I'm a chef owner of Island Creek Oyster Bar in Kenmore Square, row 34, right over there. And uh, row 34 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I am Michael Rosen. I am a commercial real estate attorney with Roberto Israel and Weiner in Boston. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into a discussion here. And you know, first of all, thank you all uh, for allowing me to join you on your panel. 
Uh, as an attorney, I run into issues that many of you deal with every single day, but also as a foodie, um, you know, this panel to me, you know, was just going to be a pleasure to participate in. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think what we're seeing in today's day and age is um, an increased demand for restaurants in mixed-use locations. And I think that one of the things that we talked about about the panel today is to talk about from a developer's perspective and from a restaurateur's perspective uh, what your experience has have been uh, both within and outside of Boston in bringing your businesses into mixed-use situations uh, with property developers. So why don't I start with Jeremy, and maybe you've got some recent experiences and can tell us a little bit about what you're doing in some mixed-use spaces. Well, we don't kind of traditionally look for kind of cookie-cutter spots. We look for things that might be a little bit different or uh, have a little different kind of dynamic. I mean, we're a big believer in being in a neighborhood. We're a big believer in, um, you know, you're going to hopefully be busy on Friday and Saturday, but you have to you know, be in a location where you can see those people on the Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays that can walk there, and you really kind of become part of a community. That's a, we're a big believer in that, and, you know, we, we feel that strongly in Kenmore Square, which was very different many years ago. We think that's really changed, um, certainly over the last 10 years, and uh, South Boston here, uh, the Fort Point neighborhood, I mean, it was, you know, when we started looking down here, the landscape was very different, but we felt strongly it was a kind of a neighborhood in transition. Um, and it was, people were moving down here as kind of a compelling location to be in, but the space wasn't, you know, it might not have been great location. There might not have been a lot of amenities around us. It might have been, uh, you know, not that attractive to a lot of people for us, but we thought it was perfect. So we wanted to kind of maintain our own identity, but ultimately being a part of a neighborhood is, is the most important thing for us. And we felt the same way in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You know, we found a spot that we felt we could really kind of integrate ourselves into that community, and that was one of the first things we looked for. So interestingly, in Kenmore and in Portsmouth, uh, you have strong ties to a hotel, um, and that's, you know, a, a, a good symmetry, a good mix, it, it looks like. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that, and then maybe, Leo, you could pick up from there and talk about Stephanie's and the fact that uh, your mix generally deals with residential properties. Yeah, you know, Eastern Standard and Island Creeker, you know, we kind of bookend the Hotel Commonwealth. Um, and that's a great hotel. They've, they've done really well. The, you know, there's some uh, great retail, and they're still working on that kind of on the front. But it would have been a very different process for us if that was a different hotel that we didn't feel was going to kind of be complementary to what we were trying to do from a restaurant standpoint in Kenmore Square. And the same in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We're next to a restaurant. It's technically the same building, but we have kind of our own identity. You don't, we're not really in the hotel. We're next to it with all the locations. So it's great to kind of have that mass of people that are around you and, and they're bringing people in. But ultimately, we wanted to be, have our own kind of identity and the, the partnership or the relationship to the things around you, whether it's a hotel or retail, was a very important part for us. Yeah, I can't agree with Jeremy enough about being part of the neighborhood. You know, um, when I first started at Stephanie's, I've been with the company about 15 years. And when I started, Stephanie's on Newberry was known to most as sort of the place that tourists go, right? And that's sort of the way that most people feel about Newberry Street in general. And as a group, we identified the fact that we needed to work harder to be 
a neighborhood place. The tourists are going to come either way, and we worked really hard to sort of develop that relationship with our neighbors and be part of the fabric of the, of the neighborhood. And as we've tried to identify additional locations, the ones we have now and going forward, we do target places like that where we can really be instrumental and an instrumental part of, of, our, of our neighborhood. As far as being in residential buildings, um, you know, there are some people in this room that know about our scenario on Newbury Street. You know, for a long time, uh, us and I think most restaurants were, you know, not really um, the tenant of choice for residential first floor spaces. Um, obviously, from my perspective, we provide an amenity to the building. We you know, offer people who typically in our neighborhoods are younger, they maybe don't want to or don't have time to cook or don't know how or don't have time to cook. They live in units with small kitchens. You know, obviously real estate, residential real estate is very expensive in those neighborhoods. And, you know, we think we really add to the building. Um, there are certainly challenges with that, though. You know, um, our neighbors are going to bed when our bars get busy, right? So uh, if you live on the second floor of any of the buildings in our, that our restaurants are in, you've probably called me at some point and told me to turn the music down. Um, uh, you know, deliveries, trash, traffic, all the things that are part of the day-to-day -day operation in a restaurant and not necessarily aligned with people sleeping in on the weekends or going to bed early at night. So there are some challenges, but we like being there. I mean, that's, it certainly worked for our model. Steve, can you kind of distinguish the, the spaces you're looking for and your business model uh, to what Leo and Jeremy have just explained about their kind of neighborhood concept? Uh, yes, uh, so... We're a suburban concept. Um, we don't been in business for 20 years. I have no restaurants um, in any urban areas at, at this point, and for that matter, don't intend to. Um, we we look for locations uh, that really operate on three legs of the stool, which are residential, uh, business, and in, in retail. And as Brian Sierra was saying earlier the demand to make the restaurant more than just great food and great hospitality, to make it an ent entertainment venue uh, is so strong in order to compete. And we're, we have five restaurants in the DC market, um, and that's you know even, I think, more competitive uh, than this market. Uh, so the restaurants become so expensive to build. Um, great real estate costs money um, so we only really at this point look at what we think is AAA real estate, and I'll tell you the truth, is that the rent deal is not our primary consideration. It's all these other factors, and the question is not what is the rent, but what's the sales potential. And nowadays, if you don't do over $4 million, and we're a 65 square foot restaurant, then it's really not compelling uh, to developers, investors, or other, others. So, Laura, you're looking at it from the other end of the spectrum. You're out there designing and developing a, a piece of property, and for the most part, from scratch. You have the chance to come up with a concept, think about it, and help it evolve. Uh, as you're looking, what are you principally looking for within your buildings, whether it be retail, restaurant, uh, office, business uses, and then how do you look to integrate and mix that in with the residential components of what you're building? Well, I think all of the pieces of the puzzle are important because we are building um, multi-use locations everywhere. And to Brian's earlier point, Brian stole all our points, where is he? Um, he? I think restaurants are definitely 
function as an anchor in, in neighborhoods these days, as well as retail. And I think that we're finding there are still retail anchors that draw people to neighborhoods, like City Target and the Fenway, and I think fitness is still doing larger stores. There's still some fashion people and groceries, so I think those are definitely a component. But when you're building a neighborhood, you have to think about all those things. You have to think about options for, for food um, within a neighborhood. People aren't necessarily going to want to have um, barbecue every night or have pizza every night. So you have to really, I think, spread the wealth and have a variety of concepts. You need to think about where your coffee shop is going to be. You need to think about your building. I think Andrea was mentioning, you know, we do have an um, office component in the Landmark Building and also in our new building in Van Ness. And you need to think about who is the person or the, the restaurant that greets you at the door on the way in. It needs to be something that it makes sense and is in keeping with the building. As you're developing as a developer and as you're looking at spaces as restaurant tours, what are some of the issues that you run into and come up against that you want to be more cognizant of up front or that you have to address as you're fitting out, building out space, whether it be negotiating the terms and conditions of tenant improvement allowances uh, or percentage rents or whether it be um, a physical limitation like where's my parking, where's my rubbish, um, how's the HVAC going to work in conjunction with the whole building? Maybe if we want to start here and if we've got some examples. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is the relationship with uh, your landlord. I mean, inevitably when there's new space that you're building out, you know, you can have as a detailed deal as you want, uh, but there's things that are going to come up that um, are going to take everyone coming to the table and, and kind of figuring it out together. So I think the relationship with the landlord is is a really important thing. Somebody who kind of is going to be invested in your success and what you're doing and believes in, you know, maybe there's someone out there that will pay a few bucks more for rent, but they believe in the concept and they believe in the, uh, the operators and, and, you know, the relationship between those two things are really one of the most important things for us. You know, everything else is negotiable, but... It's if it starts out really bad, it usually doesn't get better. Leah, I think the last panel touched on the on the TI, but you know the the fact is, you know, TI dollars usually go into everything that needs to happen in order to get you restaurant construction ready. You know, most of those TI dollars are spent long before the actual construction of the restaurant starts. So, um, again, ask for more than. I mean, ask for as much as you can get, obviously, but you're going to need more than you think you do in those dollars. And then, you know, I started to touch on it uh, when I last spoke, but, you know, there are realities in the day-to-day -day in restaurants that you, if you have the opportunity to get out ahead of them in construction, it will behoove you because it costs a lot of money and a lot of headaches if you wait and try to address those things after the restaurant is built. So noise, pollution, you know, um, smoke and odors from your exhaust, Trash. All of those things are uh, they, they they cost money to address, and oftentimes, particularly if you're either new to the business or an entrepreneur who's starting your first opening your first restaurant, you tend to shy away from those dollars because they don't fit into the you know the glitz and glamour of the dining room or the or the, or the fun and vibrancy of the bar. Right? It's not it's not pretty. It's not shiny. So you don't want to spend money on it. But I think that's where your dollars are probably best spent. Steve. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll confess that I've now built 27 restaurants and I haven't once built a restaurant on budget or on time. So, <laughs> and they all come in early and under budget. 
So it, it's a myriad of issues. I think the first thing is not become emotionally attached to a piece of real estate. And, and you begin to sanction your emotions and think that you can figure these things out. But these costs eventually will catch up with you. And our problems usually you know, aren't on the landlord side. There are decisions um, that we've convinced ourselves that we can figure out. So I think the first thing you have to do is do a, a survey of the site um, and really understand you know, what's the power, what's the structure. Uh, we recently had a building in Pennsylvania, in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, um, where we had a serious structural problem that we didn't identify. Uh, and we should have identified that. I mean, we're talking $100,000 uh, at a chunk. Um, so uh, it really relates to your due diligence, having enough time in hiring the right professionals to not only do the survey, then to also build the restaurant. I'm a strong believer that you build restaurants with people that have a, a long track record of building restaurants on time and on budget. And everybody knows about the change orders when you start to get to 32 and number 33, uh, which you know, we've all seen. Um, so due diligence. Laurie, in dealing with, in particular, our panelists, restaurateurs, what are the common issues that you try and identify up front, and what are the issues that you see arise during the course of development? I think some of the things that we see coming up the most frequently are um, when we're building the buildings, where are we putting the venting so that we can put a restaurant in that location? Um, that's new to me in these um, mixed-use buildings. Much of my career was um, with WS Development, and um, you know most of those projects historically have been suburban, so you could put restaurants anywhere you wanted. So that's definitely, uh, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Sometimes the spaces that people want aren't places that we put venting. Get a lot of pushback from people recently um, on a scrubber and um, the installation cost of a scrubber and the ongoing maintenance of a scrubber. Heard a lot about that. Um, sometimes functionally, uh, we've run, we're doing a deal at our continuum project in North Alston and we have an end cap, their access to trash they have to cut across a residential hallway. And it's not a very, it's, you know, maybe it's six or so feet, but that's been something that we've been chatting about internally and how do they get the trash. We don't necessarily want them with a huge load of trash during heavy residential times. So we, we hear some about that and push back about that. And I, I think to everybody's point in the panel before on this, TI dollars are very important. I think that it's extremely expensive to build out a restaurant for the landlord a lot of times and for the tenant and not planning for that appropriately. We also run into a lot of um, outdoor work and who's doing that, who's doing an outdoor patio and the cost of that. There can be some surprises sometimes there. And existing buildings, um, to your point on structural, we have a real mix in the Fenway of some things that are ground up and new and some things that have been there for a while. And there's always a surprise in the buildings that have been there for a while. When we... Um talked in advance of today's um, discussion, you mentioned something that was interesting to me, which was that as you're developing the apartments each year, the size of the kitchens in the apartments gets smaller. I immediately thought, well, okay, I like to cook. I'm not moving into one of those kitchens. I feel the same. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about what you've seen mm -hmm. trends over time and how that impacts um, 
what you're looking for today. I mean, is there, you know, is this here to stay? Is there going to be a restaurant in every building uh, going forward? I think absolutely there'll be a restaurant in every building. I think that um, specific to the city, you have a range of people that are living there, but you have a lot of millennials and you have a lot of empty nesters, and they don't necessarily want to cook. And we are definitely um, building residential units with smaller kitchens because we're finding that people aren't using them. We're also building them, though, with common area space that has full, I don't know if it's quite restaurant quality kitchen, but full kitchens. So if you're having a larger party or a big event, you can reserve that amenity space and have, have your event in there. Um, but we're definitely seeing that the kitchens are getting smaller. And that wouldn't work for me either, but I appreciate it. As the three of you are out looking for spaces, um, you look at what's going on in the city, you look at uh, traffic, you look at transportation, and maybe even reflect back on a year ago today when maybe there were 20, 21 inches of snow on the ground. Um, are there things that you think about that relate to the city as a whole and the infrastructure of the city that impact um, how you're thinking about designing uh, location and implementation of your next concept or your next restaurant? Yeah, I mean, all of those come into play. I, I think for us, there's some basic criteria. You know, we're not, there's no formula, and usually it's if we find a space or a neighborhood that we, we think is compelling, you know, we'll kind of pursue it. Um, are you near public transportation? What is the parking? Can that be, you know, addressed? That's a big thing. Every restaurant, uh, you know, it's a destination. No one, you, you know, whoever calls or somebody has to travel to get to your restaurant. So you have to take that into account of how they're going to get there and what's going to happen when they're there. Staffing too, I think to kind of attract and, and, you know, the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems, for, there's lots of problems for us staffing in Boston, but one of them is the trains don't run very late. And, you know, if you're a restaurant that's, that is busy late, like getting your staff home and how does that work? Um, can you get staff there? Things like that. So, you know, there isn't any perfect formula. We look for interesting space in really great areas that we think we can help transform a neighborhood. I think restaurants can be such a huge part of kind of the development and evolution of an area. I mean, they add personality, they add character, they, you know, they are an amenity or can be to, to a building or a neighborhood that, um, and I, I don't think they should all be cookie cutter. I think they should be a little bit different and interesting. And, you know, to see the restaurants that have kind of come, come, develop in Boston the last few years, I, the restaurateurs are getting bit better and more interesting and, and it's become very competitive, but there's not any one thing. I think you have to find a space and have a relationship with a landlord and feel that it's going to work for you. And, and for us, we don't, we don't have a set space that we look for. We, we look at some crazy stuff um, and try to figure it out from there. I wish ours was that scientific, to be honest. You know, we, uh, We've sort of stumbled on our additional spaces. I mean, Stephanie's on Newberry. It happened before me, but obviously Stephanie stepped into a gold mine when uh, she opened that restaurant on Newberry. I remember her telling me that her first lease was for $25 a square foot, and she thought that was all the money in the world at the time. So obviously our current lease isn't at that rate, but uh, we had a lot of good years in that space. And, um, you know, our, our second two, you know, we were approached by brokers and showed us spaces, and we looked at probably... 40 before we opened Steffi's on Tremont. And I don't know, I walked into Steffi's on Tremont, the restaurant that was there prior, and I just, it felt right. It just, it, the, the space was a mess. 
there was a wall down the middle. If, if anybody remembers the Garden of Eden in the South End, there was a wall down the middle of the space, and it was really hard to visualize a restaurant in that space. Um, you know, somebody mentioned earlier having the right partners. I mean, we brought the right architect in who had vision beyond anything I ever saw, but I knew I loved the space. I liked being on the corner. I like having frontage, and our, all of our restaurants have that. Um, and I think a lot of it has gotten feel, and... Um, you know, I, in, in identifying the fact that what you are bringing to the neighborhood is a need. And, and if that fits, then you can figure all the other stuff out. Steve, you have a little bit of a different uh, experience in that you're not relying on public transportation. You need parking. You've got people driving to your locations. So as you look at particular sites, um, are you looking at distance to highways, um, size of the parking lots, exclusive areas and parking lots? How do you manage uh, those issues? And again, last winter might be a great example where you know maybe in that parking lot they're storing, you know, a couple of mountains of snow that are taking up 40 or 50 parking spaces. Right. Um, so the first thing we do when we we look at a market and we have target markets um, is how are the other restaurants doing? And so we look for markets, ideally where every restaurant is performing above its average. And that's the first thing that, that we look at. Uh, if the restaurants don't perform well, the market is nothing further to, uh, to consider. But then, you know, clearly when we begin to look at centers, uh, we're interested in the same things uh, that developers are interested in. Well, what does the center look like? What's the quality of the center? Who are the co-tenants? Uh, what are the traffic drivers? You know, how many restaurants are there? Because as we now know, the developers as retail um, opportunities decline, there's more and more restaurants. So we've seen centers where 25% of the seats can be restaurants, and we're typically okay with that if there's a good allocation of the restaurants. But if you have, you know, four Paulus Casual guys, you know, all banging heads together, and you have no rights on what's going to happen in the future, it becomes it becomes uh, concerning. So clearly, parking is a major issue, uh, the, you know, the same, it's the same sort of tug of war and we understand where the developers coming from, but they don't make money on parking spaces. And so they'll, uh, you know, I don't wanna say they'll put as few in, but they rather, you know, have leasable space uh, than not. Uh, and so it's always that tug of war. And then I would say that the towns, the codes in the towns probably satisfy half of our true demand. So the code is really not a barometer um, on parking. So parking is, is, a, is a massive consideration. Laurie, so we're seeing this trend. The trend is restaurants and just about every new construction, every new building. Um, the restaurateurs know this. Do they have some leverage now as they're coming in to start to negotiate? And what's your ability to kind of push back a little bit um, selection-wise based on the number of people that might be interested in coming into the buildings that you're building? It's a little bit tough to answer. I think that in many ways we're both coming from a position of strength because I think that the projects that are being built, and I'll talk specifically about the city today because that's where most of my time is, but I think there are a lot of compelling choices for people, and I think there is a lot of variety from the old interesting space to the brand new space. So I think both people are, are coming at it um, 
you know, I think the leverage changes or shifts a little bit all the time, but I think that we as developers have learned a lot more about the restaurant business. It's changed a lot with more chef-driven concepts and what people will tolerate, what chef-driven concepts will tolerate from an occupancy standpoint versus maybe a chain restaurant, you know, in the olden days of restaurants. And, and those deals, I think, were different and they can tolerate um, uh, paying a higher rent. And so I, I do think it's a little bit different, but we do need the restaurants. They're a really important piece and building a neighborhood, and I don't recall who said it, it might have been Jeremy, but they can absolutely set the tone for what happens next and who else comes to that neighborhood. It's um, when we're leasing the continuum, our first commitments have been restaurants because that's what people want to know about, so. We just, yeah. So from my perspective, uh, it seems like there's so much supply of restaurants um, that there is there's a number of options, at least you know to what uh, we might bring, uh, that the landlords are able, I would say on good spaces, and I've never looked at how many LOIs you issue, but I would assume that there's four LOIs out. There's multiple LOIs out on the same space. Mm -hmm. And I think that landlords on occasion, developers, there's somebody that they have to have but uh, we never assume that we have leverage. And I'm not just saying that, because there's, there's a replacement, which is also why we never really look for a deal. We are prepared to pay market, uh, and the same on, on the TI. And the economics need to work on that understanding. So, but one of the things I'll say, so probably what the landlord's perspective is of what we can handle for rent and what we can really handle for rent are two different things. If you want, we can get into that more later if you want. Oh, you, you, you can get into it now if you want to, that's okay. We do try and, I don't know, it might have been Andrea who said this, but we try and look at our rent deals at Samuels absolutely as a function of sales. You need to be, or maybe you said it, Steve, I don't know who said it, but that's the driving force of where those economics will or will not make sense is what are people going to do for sales. We can tell a really strong restaurant story in the Fenway, so that helps us a little bit to direct where those numbers need to come in. Um, but I, I, I think I think that we really need to understand the sales as the first step. So, so not to contradict what I said earlier about it not um, that the rent is not our first consideration, that it is the sales. So from our perspective, and again, we make decisions the same way that the, the people on the other side of the tables makes, the table makes decisions. It's all about return on investment. And restaurant operators like us, I believe, look for a minimum return on investment of 30%. That's what we look at. So when we do our pro forma, our economic model, we're looking for 30, 30 plus percent. And that's how we make decisions. I always look for a deal. <laughs> You'll love a man who's honest, right? What about you, Leo? Are you looking for a deal or fair rent? Oh, everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but you know, for smaller companies, I think the, the right rent deal is very important. You know, um, I don't know, our margins, in, in our industry, I would say, our margins are very tight. The equation doesn't support 
much more than what you can afford, and that's just it. And, and you know, I've been in plenty of negotiations with developers and landlords where they absolutely think that we should be able to pay more. But the fact is, you know, the equation can pay what, the, what, the, what it can support, and that's it. And my advice would be, you know, don't think there's more money in the mix than there really is because the, 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 the stats don't lie. I think that's where percentage rent comes into play, too, because that can be a little bit of the equalizer or, or get the rent a little bit closer to market. And, you know, maybe you negotiate a little bit or put your money where your mouth is as the landlord to say, we'll start with a rent that maybe is more in your favor, but look for percentage rent when you hit a lower number. We believe in you and you're going to be an attractive amenity, so we're going to put our money where our mouth is. And we believe in our, in our neighborhood. Yeah, and we would we would always embrace percentage rent deals. You know, I, I remember Not just percentage rent. <laughs> Base plus percentage. Of course, of, of course. But I, I think that you know the idea the the idea that if we do better, you do better. I think that in in most restaurant tours, mine that makes sense. I mean, after the break even point, I think Steve might have actually said this on our call. After the break even point, the profitability changes drastically, right? So once we get to that point, you know, we're I don't want to say we're making so much money, but there's so much more money in the mix, we're happy to pay more money at that point. Are there any new trends that any of you are seeing? I mean, there's been a lot of evolution in development in Boston, uh, in development in the 128 Belt and in the suburbs. There's been a lot of change in uh, the restaurant business, whether it's you know Marketplace in Linfield, whether it's Third Street in Burlington, um, or whether it's, uh, you know, your anchor tenant in a residential development in Boston. What's the next trend? I, <clears throat> I hate the word trend. I think people ask me all the time, what's the next trend in food? And, and I have no idea. Usually I make up something really obscure that I can never be proven wrong. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, for me what I see is that, you know, the city is always going to be the city. The downtown's downtown. But I think... You know, as outside of Boston, people are going to, you know, they want better restaurants, they want better food, they want better experiences. And I think you've seen that growth happen outside of, of downtown Boston slowly and continues to be that. And um, that's what I see. I think really good operators were opening in Burlington at the end of this year. And I think that the expectation for people out in those, those areas are they want better restaurants and better operators. So that's kind of what I've seen, you know, over the last few years especially. Yeah, uh, yeah. For us, you know, anyone that's been to our restaurants knows we're anything but trendy. You know, to us, trend equals temporary, and we try really hard to avoid trends. I mean, we, we're not naive to what's happening in the market, and you know, we try to stay current and we try to stay fresh and we try not to rest on our laurels. But at the same time, we don't want to be trendy. So, uh, you know, from as a consumer, however, uh, I, you know, I probably go out to eat and drink more than I should. So uh, I see what's going on out there. Somebody mentioned like the center bars, you know, I mean, I think that that's a trend that's probably here to stay. Um, you know, if I could go back and renovate and remodel all of our restaurants, I would, I would follow that trend for sure. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of the other stuff's been mentioned, the, the chef driven concepts, the farm to table, the clean, the clean, healthy food. I mean, again, our menus for the most part are not healthy food. So we've tried to react to those. Uh, meatloaf and mac and cheese doesn't really fit in the Atkins diet. So <laughs> Um, but we've tried to react to some of those things without getting too caught up in them. I know organic meatloaf might do the trick. <laughs> we could do that for you. All right. Steve? Uh, 
again, I, I don't know what the next trend is. I think we all know the major trends in play right now, if you want to use that word. Um, and there seems to be some a common theme about environment and you know, bigger bars, more TVs, bigger TVs. Um, and I, I think in the past, the consumer demanded great food and great hospitality, and now they're demanding a really great environment on top of it all uh, as a place of entertainment. Laurie? I agree. I think it's, it's fresh, exciting ingredients. I think people want an experience, but I don't know specifically, you know, beyond what we all know today, what's kind of going on, so. So we have about five minutes left. Do we want to open it up to the audience and take any questions? Thanks for coming. Um, I used to be a former bartender at the 99, and as well as Amrines, and more importantly, uh, pretty amazing the uh, the job that uh, Samuel's done in the Hingham Shipyard as well. But uh, Steve talked about not falling in love with the deal, and uh, being a bartender in Amrines, a lot of bars in, in Southie. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, what were the three differentiators that made you decide to uh, pick that property at Stephanie's? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can you repeat the last part of that question? Yeah, what are the three differentiators that made you choose that property in uh, in Southie? You know, when we were looking, so uh, I'll go back a step. But you know, I, I argued pretty passionately three completely different potential growth strategies for our group. One was to open up Stephanie's on Newberry type restaurants in other cities in locations similar to our location on Newberry Street, so Chicago, New York, L.A. I'm not sure I really believed in that strategy, but I argued it like I did. Um, <laughs> one was to do a suburban expansion, which, frankly, Lori and I almost had a deal done in Linfield. I was so smart, I walked away from that deal. Um, and then one was to find other neighborhoods in Boston where something like Stephanie's would be uh, a nice addition to what was already happening there. So... Um, when we started looking in Southie, like everybody else probably in our industry at the time, we were looking in the seaport. And the seaport was flooded with restaurants. I didn't have the vision that Jeremy and others had in, in Fort Point. I just didn't, I didn't buy it, and I, and I was wrong, of course. So don't hire me to do any of your real estate deals, obviously. <laughs> and um, and um, then we started looking at Southie Southie, right? And... Um, you know, I'm a Boston guy, grew up, born and raised, and, and I always had an affinity for that area and that neighborhood, and I thought, look, it's next to the T, it's on two bus lines, it's not drowning in restaurants, but there's a lot of future development planned for that area, and um, I'm not going to lie, I saw the success of Amrines, right? Find success and imitate it, so um, it's part of our motto, so, um, you know, I thought, look, we would be a nice fit, a nice addition to this neighborhood, it's easy to get to, and you know, we liked it so much, frankly, we moved our offices over there, too. So now we're, uh, now, now we're all over there every day. And I, I drink a lot of Amaranth, so I'll see you over there. Any other questions? Hi. Uh, thank you guys for coming. Um, now, the last panel talked a lot about, like, having a, a central theme and doing that very well. But then they started to touch on keeping it fresh. How do you kind of maintain maintain a balance without losing an identity in a restaurant? 
I'll try this one. Um, it's, you know, you, you have to, I don't think you can, you can bend, but you can't break. I think you have to stick to what you're good at. You have to have a clear vision and, and be able to articulate what you want to do pretty clearly and, and stick with that. I mean, if you start to try to be too much of uh, everything or, you know, you find a restaurant that space that you fall in love with, but your concept might not fit there. So you try to force one in, that's not really going to work. So for us, it's, it's doing what we're good at, doing what we're passionate at and, and trying to, you know, you know, punch in your weight class, so to speak, and and that's where we've found success. Any other questions? Steve Hassel with Shawmut Design and Construction. Uh, for new locations, can you talk a little bit about the permitting paths that you wrestle with in terms of Board of Health, Building Department, Fire Department, Public Utilities, on and on? I could talk specifically about the city of Boston. Um, yeah, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, you know, every every department has its own contact person and their own way of doing things, and and knowing the right questions to ask and the right things to say or not say, and the right people to talk to in the process is definitely helpful. Um, I think a lot of this goes back to having the right partners before and during the construction process. Um, you know, I can tell you, CAFCO uh, Construction, Ed is here. They, they built our three restaurants and have done renovations on Stephanie's on Newberry. And they were instrumental partners in that, <coughs> excuse me, in that process for us every time. You know, they, they build a lot of restaurants and they have the formula. They do a lot of work in downtown Boston and they, they, know, they know how to navigate that maze. I will say that the city has started to um, streamline that process a little bit. It's been much, much easier um, this time than last time, so to speak. Um, even the license renewals this year, I don't know how many restaurateurs are in the room, but the license renewal process this year was significantly easier than it has been in the past. So, you know, I'm hoping that the city of Boston sort of catches up to the fact that the internet exists and, um, <laughs> and, and you know, a lot of the things that you have to go to City Hall or 1010 Mass Ave to do in person, you could probably accomplish online. But uh, it's, not a, it's not an easy process, and I, I, I would say that, you know, having the right attorney and, and, and the right construction partner is, is, a, is in, uh, integral in, in making that work. And I think there was one other question. A question for Jeremy. You had a pop-up store on Newberry uh, for the holiday. Can you talk about that in your scheme, and was it successful? Uh, yeah, it would. It, so... It wasn't me. I own Island Creek Oyster Bar, but the Island Creek Oyster Farm is a separate entity. We are partners with the farm. So the farm did a pop-up store on Newberry, and I was very much involved, so I can pretty confidently speak to it. I think it was more of a, a test for uh, if there was an opportunity for them to do a kind of a pop-up store to sell oysters, you know, T-shirts. Uh, my cookbook was the number one selling item at the store, so I was very happy about that. But. Uh, but it was just really, you know, always trying to keep the name out there, always trying to keep the brand strong on the oyster farm and the oyster bar side. So that was just kind of uh, an opportunity that fell into everyone's laps, and they decided they were going to run with it, and I, I thought they did a really successful job. Um, you know, I, don't, I think it's hard to find space that you can make work with that for 12 months, but for one month, a little pop-up, you know, oyster shop worked really well. And we have one final question right here as well. Steve, you mentioned um, the 
number of square feet you look for in your prototype. And Jeremy, uh, I think you talked about looking for cool space and then trying to fit that cool space. Um, to what extent do restaurateurs have a certain number of square feet they look for as opposed to trying to shoehorn into something and make it look and feel cool? You know, for us, it's you find the space. If you like it, you know, you, you just have to do the math. How many seats can you put in there? How big can the kitchen will, will it work from that perspective? But, you know, with our with the row 34 concept, we feel that, you know, that would work in a larger space that works in a smaller space. So we feel pretty comfortable that the right space, the right neighborhood, the right area, the right partnership with a landlord is, is you know, we feel that we can fit that concept in. But that, that doesn't, it wouldn't work for, you know, every restaurant, but it just works for the Oyster Bar. And I'll just jump on that also. Uh, for us, uh, about 6,500 square feet is really important uh, for the kitchen design, and this is all in pursuit of, uh, of execution, consistency of execution, and, you know, be able to predict our volumes. Uh, we, we, a kitchen in a 4,000-square-foot store costs the same as it does in a 6,500-square-foot store, so we want to make sure that we have enough seats to leverage that investment in the infrastructure. And I would say that typically the larger the group, the more locations they have, the more formularic that equation probably is. You know, and oftentimes if you've built a lot of restaurants, you've learned from mistakes in the past and you know what works for you. So I would say, you know, with smaller companies or somebody who's in their first or second uh, restaurant build, they'd probably tend to be a little bit more adventurous with size. I think with that, we're kind of reaching the end, so I'm going to hand it back to Tyler. Amazing. Well, before we thank our panel, I encourage everyone to stick around. We have a cocktail hour in the, in the main area out there. So to everyone on this panel, Michael, for orchestrating all of this and leading the discussion, big round of applause for our panel. Yeah, you want to give me a hand with that?